2: But you better hurry because this bundle won't last long. Save now at CedarPoint.com. Welcome
0: to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, and welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, listener mail. My name is Joe McCormick. My regular co-host, Robert Lamb, is not with me today, so in an unusual twist, I'm going to be doing today's episode solo. Uh, But for all of the people who have inquired, nothing weird's going on. Rob and I just had a couple of uh, awkwardly timed back-to-back vacations, and we're about to be coming uh, back into recognizable form. So I'm going to be doing a core episode of the show tomorrow with a special guest, And then later on this week, Rob and I will both be back and ready to chase that fairy fire into the bogs of October. Uh, So I guess with that, I'll jump right into some of your messages. This first batch came in response to our series on the Black Death and religious responses to the, the second plague pandemic. I think first I'm going to read this message from Livia. Livia writes... Dear Robert and Joe, Hi, my name is Livia, and I'm a big fan of the show. I was particularly excited to listen to your recent episodes on God and the Black Death, as I did some research on that topic in college. I was actually in the middle of researching it right as our own plague hit in March of 2020. Uh, And she actually attaches a, a... Part of a short paper that she wrote on the subject, uh, but then explains, quote, my basic argument is that the poor reaction of religious authorities in Europe to the Black Death caused a widespread loss of faith in the church, which created an opportunity for new spiritual leaders like mystics to gain followings. This end to the hegemony of the church, combined with the rise of new, more individual-focused forms of Christian spirituality, ultimately paved the way to the Protestant Reformation." And then she recommends a book that she uh, found helpful on this subject called From the Brink of Apocalypse by an author named John Aberth. And then finishes by saying, uh, that aside, thank you both for creating such a great podcast. Uh, I actually enjoy doing laundry and dishes because it's an excuse to listen to you guys. I really look forward to part three of the series. All the best. Livia. Well, Livia, uh, as always, thank you for the, the kind words and thanks for getting in touch. Uh, I, I don't know enough about this subject to have a strong opinion on whether the Black Death uh, weakened the authority of the Catholic Church and whether it was truly a determining factor in the Protestant Reformation. It does seem plausible, though. Uh, then again, it, it it got the gears turning in my head and uh, made me think about how, though this is not, uh, in particular, a, a counter-argument against the claim you're making about the, the second plague pandemic in the Catholic Church, it did get me thinking about how things like faith in a religious institution don't always react to external inputs in predictable ways. Uh, and the main example that came to my mind is a famous book in 20th century psychology called When Prophecy Fails, a social and psychological study of a modern group that predicted the destruction of the world. Uh, This was a book by uh, three co-authors, Leon Festinger, Henry Riken, and Stanley Schachter. And uh, this is a somewhat different issue, different than the example of the plague, uh, or at least a different type of undermining of religious authority. But it did make me think about studies of what happens when religious expectations for external events are not fulfilled. Uh, so this book was originally published in 1956. We talked about Leon Festinger in some episode that we did recently. Uh, he's known for promoting the theory of cognitive dissonance where a, a mismatch between, um, between the beliefs that you hold versus your observation of the external world uh, causes a, a state of discomfort that you will seek to resolve uh, through uh, sometimes through rather radical means. And in this specific example, the the authors here studied a small UFO cult whose leader claimed to be receiving messages from another planet. And this cult predicted on the basis of these messages that there was going to be an apocalyptic flood that would destroy human civilization in the year 1954. And of course, it didn't happen, yet some members of the cult not only continued believing in the messages and, and in the cult authority structure, but increased their dedication to the cult with rationalizations about the, the mismatch between their predictions and observed reality. And, and their uh, increased dedication was measured through things like uh, even more preaching, uh, pr- public preaching and, and sharing of the cult's message. And I know there's been some later criticism of the author's me- methodology in this book. Uh, for example, I think how their their documentation of the cult might have actually influenced the behavior of the members. So I think this is uh, uh, not without its critics, but given that we can observe lots of other instances similar to this, I think there's still probably something useful to be learned from the explanation that the authors gave here which is basically that when the cult members were faced with extremely uncomfortable cognitive dissonance, and this dissonance would be caused by the mismatch between I predicted X would happen. I predicted there would be an apocalyptic flood versus I observed that in fact, not X happened that, or that Y happened, uh, that there was no apocalyptic flood. And because they had already sacrificed so much on the basis of that prediction. So you can think of those in multiple ways. They may have sacrificed wealth Uh, social capital, and so forth, one natural way to alleviate that excruciating dissonance is to double down. So you double down on the original belief, you believe it even more strongly, you preach it even more fervently, thereby potentially adding new believers and increasing the faith of other believers and thus increasing social support within the cult belief structure. Now, as I mentioned earlier, uh, these are clearly two very different ways that a religious authority could be potentially undermined. One by making predictions that don't come true, and the other by simply failing to be able to do anything about the the cataclysmic human suffering caused by the second plague pandemic. Uh, But I can see some parallels. And so so I wonder, uh, I, I think you could well be correct in your characterization that uh, that the second plague pandemic led to a series of, of social outcomes that undermined faith in the Catholic Church, led to these alternative forms of spirituality, maybe more individually focused, and eventually paved the way to the Protestant Reformation. Uh, that does seem quite plausible, though, uh, I don't know, I, I also do find it very interesting how uh, th- things like religious faith and, and faith in the authority of religious institutions doesn't always react to external events in a way that's strictly predictable from the outside. All right, this next message comes to us from Ed. Ed is also reacting to the the Plague series, and he says, Hi guys, while listening to your series on the Plague, images in a montage in the 1936 film Things to Come kept coming to mind. As you may recall, after civilization is destroyed in never-ending wars, I think he means in the movie, plagues ravage the world. What do you think of the film? Thanks, Ed. And uh, this one definitely uh, caught my interest because I'd never seen this movie before. I don't think I was even aware of it. If it if I was, I'd forgotten about it. But I looked it up, and it does indeed look fascinating. So this is a British science fiction movie from 1936 written by H.G. Wells, who we talked about in the uh, Weird House Cinema episode on Time After Time. Uh, but it was based on a book that he wrote called The Shape of Things to Come, which Uh, I have not read, but which seems to operate as a kind of speculative future history. So it's a book that spans multiple generations of time beyond the horizon of of Wells or the filmmakers. And so the broad outline is that Wells predicted a global war would break out in 1940 and rage for decades after that. So partially prescient there. uh, And that the war would be so brutal and devastating that it would cause the world to descend into a new dark age. Especially because toward the end of the conflict, the belligerents turn from conventional weapons to biological weapons, unleashing new forms of disease and plague that kill something like half the people on Earth. And after this, all government falls away, and the world descends into anarchy and barbarism, and everybody lives in this warlord hell of, of plague vikings. Eventually though the earth is saved by uh, some sort of international coalition of strangely pilots and engineers they're called wings over the world and they're they're based out of a, a of a hub in Iraq and they fly around reestablishing order they outlaw war they rebuild lost scientific and technological capabilities so that its benefits can be spread to all of the people of the planet and uh, I, I thought it was interesting here that wells identified airplanes as one of the technologies primarily associated with future progress uh so there there's uh, also a thing in the movie where uh, there's a final section set far in the future and the inhabitants of earth are planning a mission to the moon which i guess is another extension of the air travel principle taken to the next level and uh and I, i don't know i thought it was curious that we do in science fiction today still associate space travel with uh sort of the the cutting edge of future technology, one of the things that is emblematic of technological progress overall, but not so much for air travel. If a similar future history were written today, I wonder uh, if it would be instead of pilots, who would be the people who uh, come in to try to reestablish order? I don't know if it would be uh, IT professionals or something. (laughs) Uh, but anyway, so uh, poking around a bit in the movie, I have not watched the whole thing, but it does look really interesting. Uh, and at some point, I guess things are supposed to be taking place in the far future and everybody's dressed and uh, they're, they're living in a technological utopia, but everybody is also dressed in medieval tunics. And they, so they look kind of like Bunny Breckenridge in Plan 9 from Outer Space, which, uh, which I found funny, but uh, definitely looks like it is worth a watch.
1: Inspired by guaranteed, straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber. Live like a gueguinean. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com/hypergig for details.
0: Alright, one more message in response to the Black Death episodes. This one came in from our listener Zbigniew, uh, and this was a, a really good clarification that, that's uh, worth pointing out. So uh, Zbigniew got in touch to say that, uh, to, to uh, comment on when we were talking in the third plague episode, about anti-Semitic conspiracy theories that arose in Christian Europe during the Black Death. So there would be these mass delusions that Jews had somehow caused the plague epidemics by poisoning wells, and uh, this led to massacres of Jewish people in communities throughout Europe. And we mentioned something about how there have been recent echoes, more recent echoes, at least, of this type of thinking in which people falsely accuse minority groups, sometimes specifically Jews, of causing infectious disease. And rob. Men- mentioned, I think what he uh, said was a a Polish poster from World War II blaming Jews for typhus. And Zbigniew wrote in to emphasize that though this poster was written in Polish, it was a German Nazi poster that was hung up in Nazi-occupied Poland, and this is why it was written in Polish. And uh, yeah, that's very good to point out uh, if that was unclear to anyone. The poster was Polish in the sense that it was in the Polish language, not a poster of Polish origin. So thank you very much for that clarification, Zbigniew. All right, now I think I'm going to be moving on from the from responses to the Black Death series and I'm going to read a message from our listener Raj. Raj says, "Hello gentlemen. I know you've received many emails regarding mirrors, but here is one more to add to the wall. I was working out recently and was on a stationary bike that happened to be facing a window. Since it was early in the morning and the lights in the studio were not too bright, I could easily see my reflection in the window, thus acting as a pseudo-mirror. Noticing this observation, my mind immediately went to your episodes regarding the mirror, and I then remembered a Listener Mail episode where Joe explained how mirrors work. I apologize for not remembering the specifics, but it had something to do with the notion that mirrors reverse the image along the Z-axis and not the X or Y-axes. Uh, Yeah, I guess I'll interject here if this helps uh, to give a quick refresher. I I was answering a question about why a mirror appears to flip our image horizontally. So your left hand becomes your reflection's right hand, even though it's still the image of your left hand, uh, but at the same time does not flip your image vertically. You don't seem to notice any equivalent phenomenon going on with uh, reversal of your head and your feet. And my conclusion was actually that this impression we have about it reversing the horizontal axis but not the vertical is an illusion that's predicated on the fact that human bodies are horizontally symmetrical. Uh, And you can test this out a bit just by imagining that human bodies looked exactly the same, except they floated sideways in the air. So imagine a human body floating sideways. If it uh, raises its left arm to its side, it's going to be pointing toward the ground. If it raises its right arm to the side as if, you know, to the side as if doing a jumping jack, it's going to be pointing toward the sky. In this case, uh, it would be exactly the opposite. If humans floated sideways like this, a mirror would appear to flip you vertically, but not horizontally. And so I think the most accurate way to describe what a mirror does to your image is neither horizontal nor vertical flipping. It's actually turning your image inside out. The mirror reverses your image along the axis of depth, a distance from the mirror, not height or width and human bodies just happen to be constructed in such a way that an inside out image of our front facing side is confusing like this. So you raise your left hand and your reflection raises the hand that would be the right hand if it was another person looking at you from your mirror images position, but it is the image still of your left hand. Uh, and so the, this, uh, This is just not something we encounter in everyday life anywhere except looking into a mirror, so it kind of short-circuits the brain. Anyways, uh, Raj continues... I was recalling this memory while I happened to be looking at my reflected feet, and all of a sudden my feet looked as if they were pedaling backwards. Not only that, I then began to feel as if I were physically pedaling backwards. I tried to make sense of this, but trying to reconcile my confused perception with trying to understand how mirrors work, all while keeping up with my workout, was too mentally taxing, and I ultimately had to look away from my reflection to reorient myself. Looking back to this moment, I'm still not sure what happened, and trying to make sense of it just invokes more confusion. But in the end, it's still a comical memory to think about, and so I thought I'd share it with you. Well, Raj, I don't know exactly what to make of that. That's very interesting, and I'd be interested if uh, if other listeners have insights on what's going on here. It almost seems like a combination of the way mirrors mess with our heads, but then also... Um, I don't actually know what the name for it is, but the the optical illusion where there is the the twirling ballerina and you can see it twirling either direction. It appears to twirl either clockwise or counterclockwise, depending on just sort of uh, nothing changes about the the animation. It's just the way your brain sees it. Uh, You can look that up and find the name of it if you're you're trying to figure out what I'm talking about. But ultimately, I don't know. Yeah, that's very curious. So uh, Raj goes on. Moving on, I was thinking about Oddle one day, as one does, and I thought to myself that would be a pretty cool weapon to wield in D&D. I don't recall D&D being brought up in the Oddle Oddle episode, but it made me wonder if it was an actual item. It turns out it exists in both D&D and Pathfinder, some of which are canon and some are homebrew extensions. I'm not sure where or how I'd be able to fit the autolotl in any of my current D&D or Pathfinder campaigns, but I'm excited at the prospect of being able to use it. I wonder if either of you have considered using it in any of your campaigns. Well, Raj, this would be fun to ask Rob about once he gets back. We may have to revisit this in the next Listener Mail episode, uh, if we were called to bring it up. But, uh, but no, I have not used it. Uh, I don't know. That, that seems like a, it seems like a weapon for a, uh, for a brawnier and more courageous character than mine who is, who is mostly a liar and a coward. Um, so, so yeah, I, I have not gotten around to the ottawa use yet, but maybe in the future. Anyway, uh, Fine. Uh, moving on to Raj's last point about whispering weapons. Uh, Raj says, another great episode, and once again, another tie-in to D&D. In one of the campaigns I'm playing in, one of the players got his sword as part of a loot. Since that player's character doesn't use swords, my character eventually got his hands on it. Shortly afterward, my character started to hear a voice in his head, and it was the sword. My mind immediately went to your episode on the Whispering Sword, so I asked it what its name was. It replied that no one had ever thought to ask it that question, so it didn't have a name. So, like with any great weapon, I'll have to give it a name, though admittedly that's still a work in progress. More excitement abounds, as I might have to go back and re-listen to that episode and get some inspiration on how to roleplay with this new item. Thanks as always for the wonderful content, keep up the great work, cheers, Raj. Well, uh, yeah, Raj, thanks as always for writing in and, uh, very intriguing about the sword. You'll have to keep us updated on, on how it turns out. Though I would be slow to trust a sword that speaks. I'm I'm not quite sure why. Okay. Maybe one last message here about weird house cinema, uh, and a warning, the following email contains some Gaelic that I am, I'm sure I'm going to fail at pronouncing, um, This is from Aaron. Aaron says, Hi, Robert and Joe. Dia Duit from Ireland. I have to say that I think Weird House Cinema is probably my favorite offering from your good selves. If I haven't seen the film being discussed, I normally listen to the first part of the podcast to see if it's something I'd be interested in watching. It usually is, much to the dismay of my wife, uh, then I'll listen to the rest of the podcast after watching the film or more often just start the whole thing over from the beginning. Uh, My favorite part of the podcast is usually the plot breakdown section. It can be interesting to see what strange moments you pick out to talk about. And I sometimes find myself laughing out loud if we notice the same things, such as the young fella's nail collection in the Russian space movie. Oh, yeah, yeah. uh, Teens in the universe. That was a good one. Aaron says, I found this section I guess the the plot breakdown uh, conspicuous in its absence from your cast about time after time. I really enjoyed the film and was looking forward to the plot summary, but this didn't occur, and instead you were careful to avoid any spoilers. Is this a new direction you're heading in? I hope not, because your take on the proceedings in some seriously crazy films can be hilariously entertaining. I hope this doesn't come across as being overly critical. I really enjoy listening to you two rambling on about stuff I I would genuinely never consider in a million years i especially like the october monster stuff and the promise of a new anthology of horror episode anyway all the best uh slan august benacht aaron oh and then finally aaron says p.s one of the bits i hoped you'd mention in time after time was the bit where uh, malcolm mcdowell hailed the cab by imitating the woman doing it before him i must have rewound that part about 12 times malcolm mcdowell could be seriously funny when he wanted to be uh, well, Aaron, no, this is not a general direction. I, I think we'll just go case by case. And some movies seem like it would be more fun to break down the plot in detail. I know we've got one coming up this week where we, we go into great detail. I think it may be, maybe our longest, uh, weird house yet. Cause we got so wrapped up talking about it. Uh, but yeah, with others, it just feels more appropriate to talk about the movie from a higher altitude. So, or, or sometimes somewhere in between it just depends on the movie. Oh oh well one one last short message before we go um this will be this will be from Tom subject line Tom Bombadil these of course keep pouring in and Tom suggests a uh a so far unique uh one uh, we've not heard this one yet uh the pick is Elton John very interesting you know the, the these casting uh, choices never cease to amaze me yeah 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 okay I, I'm a big fan of the Tumbleweed Connection, in which uh, Elton John—it was one of his earlier albums—in which he sort of uh, he sort of p- performs as a cowboy. I don't know if that's too far off from from becoming a sort of uh, 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 jolly god of the woods. So yeah, yeah, I can see it. Anyway, I guess that's going to close things out for this episode, but, uh, hey, stay tuned for the rest of the week. There is going to be, uh, so I'm going to do a core episode with special guests tomorrow. And then later in the week after that, or Rob's going to be back, will rejoin me for some, uh, some great October content that we've been excited about all year. So, so stick around and, uh. And, uh, and, and keep listening. You can, of course, if you're not subscribed to this podcast, you can find it probably anywhere you get podcasts. It is the stuff to blow your mind podcast uh, where we do a number of different episodes in our, in our daily offerings today. So on Mondays, we do listener mail episodes like this one, though. Usually Rob is here with me on Tuesdays and Thursdays. We do core episodes, which are our classic style episodes. They tend to be usually focused around uh, science and science intersecting with other cultural topics. Uh, on Wednesdays, we tend to do an episode called The Artifact, which is a short-form series, usually uh, sub-10 minutes and focused on a particular object idea or moment in time. And then on Fridays, we do Weird House Cinema. Rob and I both love strange movies, and that's our time to talk about them. And then on Saturdays, you will get a Vault episode, an older episode of the show that we've selected to rerun. So if you're not subscribed to the podcast, please do subscribe. Uh, thanks, as always, to our wonderful audio producer. Seth Nicholas Johnson, and if you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to blow
1: your,
0: Stuffed blow your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts are wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
1: Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit visible.com.
2: Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com.